Welcome to the Order Up Show, the operations management podcast presented by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy from Ops Analytica. The number one reason why managers don't do their checklists or justify to themselves that it's okay not to do their checklists is because we have set them up for failure. We give our managers these very thorough, very long checklists that take a while to complete, 30, 45, I've seen 60 minute pre-shift checklists. And then we say, hey, go do these every day, but also you have to do them during the busiest part of your shift. Well, you can't do that. It's impossible, right? The, the immediate issues of the shift are always going to trump them doing the checklist. So they just don't do them. And that's why Ops Analytica invented our real-time collaboration. With real-time collaboration, you can have multiple team members on different devices all working together to simultaneously complete the same checklist. So now you can take the responsibility off your busiest employee, your manager, at their busiest time of the day and say, hey, you don't have to spend an hour doing this. You can instead go, hey, pass this around to your team members and everybody can bang this out in 10 minutes and you achieve all of your goals. You achieve your readiness goals. You achieve your development of your employee goals. You are controlling what you can control and everything is better with real-time collaboration only available on the Ops Analytica platform. Check us out, opsanalytica.com. Hey everybody, it's Tommy. I'm back with another episode. I know it's been a little bit uh but we are back we are excited to be here today please welcome to the show rob carpenter rob thank you for coming on thank you for having me man i'm excited yeah. to be here we could have done this in person because rob and i are probably like well with traffic like an hour from each other. <laughs> the like almost six inches of snow outside would make that a little less appealing but yes we could have <laughs> absolutely so rob welcome to the show the show's super easy we did i ask everybody the same five questions and the first question is my favorite. So explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from when you started to now, how you got here. Yeah. So thank you again for having me. Um, so I'm the CEO of Valiant AI and we build conversational AI technology. So think of Siri, Alexa, Google Home, but instead of just being ask and answer, a system that you could actually carry on a conversation with. Our core thesis is around workforce automation, the workforce of the future. Um, we've been at historically low unemployment rates for over a decade now. And there's a lot of industries that are struggling, especially around hospitality and food services where they can't find and staff enough people. And so the idea is that we build conversational AI platforms that act and sound like employees and are able to carry on conversations with customers and complete tasks. So our first use case is around drive-through AI technology. Yeah. We work with really large fast food restaurant brands we custom build and install these conversational AI technologies into their drive-through. So if you've ever pulled into a Taco Bell or Burger King and you know, you're know you talking to the speaker and looking to place an order, instead of talking to an employee inside the restaurant, you'd be carrying on a conversation with our AI. So we answer your questions, we take your order, we inject it into the point of sale system, we get a price and give you your total, and then you're able to drive on and continue on with your day. So that's, you know, really where we're at right now, kind of in a nutshell from a product standpoint. And then going to your second question, my background probably will be one of the more random ones that you've ever had on your show. So I was uh, born and raised on the West Coast of Alaska, right on the Bering Sea. So if you think deadliest catch, that's effectively my backyard. Uh, it was an hour and a half plane ride from Anchorage. It was a Yupik Eskimo village of about 2000 people very very isolated growing up we didn't have a lot of money so we'd only get into anchorage you know once every other year or once every three years um and i always like to joke you know back then it was fun you know watching tv except you'd see commercials for movies and things like that that were coming out and it, the, the thought i always had is like man i can't wait for nine months from now when that comes out on vhs so i can watch that movie <laughs> so there's still some things, you know, after spending 18 years up there that uh, even to this day, I always get a little excited when I get to go to a movie theater. Uh, so 
it, it, it was a very interesting place to grow up. I, uh, all my family was from Michigan before they moved to Alaska. So I went to Northern Michigan University because I wanted to get away from Alaska. But I guess in hindsight, not too far away from Alaska yeah. as, you know, you get 10 feet of lake effect snow up there. Um, and I ultimately got a degree in entrepreneurship. Started an advertising business when I was in college, um, graduated at the awesome time of 2008. Uh, it took me 350 job applications to land my first job, uh, which was in commercial real estate. And I was, after 23 years, actually ready for warm weather. And I had some family down in Florida. So I moved down to Florida for two years. Um, it was great to be close to the beach. It was a really cool experience. Uh, I did commercial real estate. But 2008, 2009, commercial real estate in Florida was a, a brutal and extremely good learning experience. Um, stuck it out for two years. I saw our office go from 60 people that showed up full time to about 16. Uh, along the way, I became one of the top 10 sales associates in the office, which was pretty cool the first year and didn't really mean a whole lot the second year. Um, but after those two years, I was finally ready to, to go somewhere else. And that's how I ended up out here in Denver. So I had a buddy from Northern Michigan that came down to Denver. He's like, hey, come out. If you like it, stay. If you don't, you, know, you can go somewhere else. So crashed on his couch. He was the only person I knew in the state. I'd never been here before in my life. Um, and uh, I found it to be kind of the, the perfect thing for me, where it was a little bit like Alaska, but it had a lot more civilization than Alaska did. Yeah. And uh, ended up meeting my wife here. We now have two beautiful little girls who are three and seven. And I've spent the last 10 to 12 years, you know, building and running my own companies. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Colorado, to say the least. Yeah, Colorado is the best. I grew up in Maryland and then I uh, went to school in Philadelphia for two years and I had a transfer and I wanted to do a hotel restaurant. And this is in the nineties. Yeah. Like you had the book, you would go to the library and get the book at the top 10 colleges. And they were all yeah. on the East coast, except for UNLV and university of Denver for a hotel restaurant. And oh. so I was like, well, I sure as shit don't want to go to uh, UNLV and just sweat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was like, nah. So, and then I like to ski. So I was like, well, Denver it is. And then I really never left Denver. I mean, for like, I mean, so from 92 until 2022, so 30 years, I probably spent wow. three or four years outside of Colorado. Um, I lived in LA for like a 16 months, maybe. I lived in uh, the East Coast for like maybe 16 months. I lived in Chicago, you know. So it was like three, yeah, four to five years I was out of that time frame. I was doing other things mostly i was a stand-up comic for a lot of years so like 95 to 05 i was in stand-up so i was always doing right stuff. So, do, we, do we get to do we get to hear a bit on the podcast i mean no, i feel like your dirty. listeners would love it they're all too dirty i can't believe i cursed i had just gone <laughs> back from a vacation where i went with my best friend from high school with no kids around so like my filter got shut off for a week and now i have to like Wretched. put it back together yeah, yeah. i can't understand what i like what i would normally say around yeah absolutely um, i went to uh mexico 10 days ago i'm in uh for the entrepreneurship side of this podcast i'm in a group called eo entrepreneurs organization some people have heard of ipo it's kind of like that um anyways and so i'm in a forum with eight other people so us and our spouses no kids all went down to Puerto Vallarta. We rented this like 10 bedroom house that was right on a golf course and had an absolutely spectacular time. It was a good opportunity to relax and unwind, but there was definitely some work to kind of rebuild that filter when I came back home. Oh yeah. Cause you, you forget the person you were before you had kids. I know. And then you, but sometimes you get into it a little bit too hard. And then the next morning, you're like, Whoa, I need to slow down a little bit. I still got like three days ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. That pendulum starts to go like, you know, yeah. starts swinging from kid pendulum side to like, woo, college, that's rage. You know, exactly. My liver is like, Whoa. yeah, we're not 25 anymore. Settle down. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, uh, conversational AI, obviously yep. the goal here, right? is to remove an FTE. Like I want to, I don't, if I don't have to staff one less person that I have to staff at the window that has to take that person who's now at the window taking orders, right? Yep. Is now that person is probably not getting rid of them because you still need to collect the money until you go complete offline at pay, right? But Completely then like, you have to hand drinks and food to people, right? 
So, yep. but like you're trying to, re but like now that person who's in the window can do more of getting the food out faster because they're not on the register. Completely correct. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I would, you know, be disingenuous if I didn't say that ultimately, obviously, businesses are looking at this as a way to um, eliminate an FTE. The reality right now, because of the record unemployment, is somewhere between 33 and 50% of all restaurants in the United States today are understaffed. Um, we're working with one very well-known chicken chain uh, at a restaurant location down in Florida, and they normally run 150 people on staff, and right now they have 75. So there's a very, very critical labor shortage out in the market today. So the reality of what we're doing today is we're just trying to backfill already understaffed restaurants, and by automating the order taking, you are 100% correct, somebody still needs to process payment, but they can also then run food out to people, fill up soft drinks, put food in a bag, answer questions. I mean, we've even seen people that are on the grill line that are then coming over to process payments. So it's um, it, it's a pretty tough situation out there right now for restaurants. And so I think across the board, they're looking at ways of how they can automate voice, which is what we're doing being one. I also think what Miso Robotics is doing is extremely fascinating as well with their burger flipping robot, Flippy. And I, I think yeah. they're testing a few others like a fry robot and they're doing something with chipotle too yeah i like miso i got a guy by the way who's next door to you us robotech and he's mm -hmm. doing some amazing stuff too and i honestly think we need to hook the three of we need to get on all we ought to get on a call together because he's got robots that have like cat faces like they're from china and they have like oh a, yeah like an emoji face almost you know yeah, oh, we just need to embed a voice into them so you can actually talk to them and carry on a conversation well, with them. They talk now. They, they'll they tell you, like, you know, your food is on the second tray. But they, what they don't do is take the order. But he's already hooked into the POS. So there, there's there's some synergy there. We got a offline. We'll all get together and uh, and we'll chat. And maybe you guys can work together. He's built an amazing um, – he's, he's built some cool stuff. And uh, but he's got like a kitchen because these robots, his robots are robots for delivering and take. So like, for instance, it could take your menus and take you to your table from the host stand. It can be you can push a button on it and it will drive back to the kitchen with dirty dishes, you know, or from the kitchen, you can stack it full of food and then tell it what tables to go to. And it'll drive out, go up to the table, be like your Kung Pao chicken is on the second shelf. And then it turns you grab your kind of power chicken off then it drives you know whatever it's pretty sweet that's so cool i didn't know there were any of those companies here in denver yeah first, oh, yeah. Beers, first beers on me that sounds like a fun conversation yeah for sure so uh that's cool okay so that's what you're doing and by the way like at this point you're not really reducing an fte you're just making it easier because it's because like you have like, you're kind of running right now you're probably kind of like us in some respects too you're in the soft ROI space, right? You're delivering an incredible amount of value, but they can't afford to fire that FTE. What they really need to do is use that guy to do more because they, they are so short staffed. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we had another restaurant in Atlanta that we were working at and they're supposed to be running anywhere between th three and four people minimum on a shift. Um, and the entire shift called out and the general manager came down to the restaurant and that one general manager coupled with our AI actually ran that entire shift until the next shift showed up. So you never want to be in that kind of situation. Obviously, that's going to lead to burnout and poor customer experience. But the simple fact that one person ran an entire restaurant with our AI is a pretty cool use case of how this can help with the current labor shortage that's out there right now. Well, and it's interesting, too, because like so like like the Wendy's in my area. So Highlands Ranch is notoriously hard. Well, I don't know. I have a whole thing with this labor shortage, right? Because like the Chick-fil-A, okay. So like the Wendy's in the parking lot, like that's right by my house. They oftentimes are running one person, right? There's literally the order taker, but I think their volume is so low, which I don't know how these Wendy's are surviving right now. Their volume is so low that they can literally have somebody take your order. They can run back, they can cook the food. And then they they just bring it to the you know the door you know the window really holy cow yeah and it's horrible because it takes five or ten minutes to get anything right it's miserable experience and yeah, so you get probably fresh <laughs> yeah exactly 
yeah but then, so you're just like so frustrated you're like are you kidding me like what is going on here so at the point where i don't go to them anymore but literally a hundred feet away there's a chick-fil-a that has lines that you like that are blocking up the road you know what i mean they've got five or seven kids high school kids all outside taking orders to the you know like they've got two kids sitting outside the drive-through window outside handing the food over you know not including all the people inside plus they've got four or five kids on tablets that walk next to your car you know and so i had heard from the guy who owns the mod that runs mod pizzas in this area and he's like we have a, always have a hard time staffing at highlands ranch because people don't want to work in the restaurants there but then I just go, well, you're a, you're 500 feet away from the Chick-fil-A. So obviously they have, they are staffed. You know what I mean? So I just. They, they are, but that still might be a situation a where, yeah, where they have a higher total employee base than other locations, but to their own peak, they could still be below where they want to be for the exactly. type of volume that they do. That's true. But they're not sucking up all the employees. You know what I mean? Like right. I just feel like when you give good benefits, when you take good care of your people, like I, I ran into a guy recently here in town, his dad used, his stepdad used to run all the brokers. The brokers were famous in this area. There was one in Boulder right by the CU dorms over by the Marriott or whatever the hotel is. And like, you know, they were these big fancy restaurants and their big thing was this endless peel and eat shrimp. And like in the eighties and nineties, like when I came out here, they were like the, if you were going to go into a business meeting or something, you'd go to the broker, you know? And, and he's like, I haven't had turnover in three years. You know, my buddy runs Snarfs, you know, Snarfs, the great sandwiches, the best sandwiches. He oh, man, they're spectacular. They never have any turnover because when somebody quits, literally, they make so much money because they get about 10 bucks an hour in tips at Snarfs per employee. So they're making like 20, they're making like over 50K a year, like a sandwich maker at Snarfs. Wow. Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? That literally when somebody quits, somebody who works there is like, my buddy, Bob. Give him a job. You know what I mean? Like instantly. <laughs> yeah, I know people are not having turnover, but I also understand if your business is kind of like just getting by, you can't do all the things you need to do. Well, well you can, but you're going to come out of your pocket to do it. But it's only it's the self fulfilling prophecy. If you yeah. don't invest in employees and and suck it up on your end for a while then you're never going to be able to dig your way out of the hole you're in, right? But if you just stay in the yep. hole you're in, it's going to suck. Well, I think to your point, culture is super critical, right? And that is something that's a bit more intangible that may not even cost you a whole lot, but it's just like, what's the general feel and experience that people have working for you? And I think that those companies like Chick-fil-A that have strong cultures do see that they have a very strong competitive edge in the market. Even though there's a lot going on with Starbucks around unions and things like that, they do do a lot around healthcare and education and things like that for their staff. Similar to Chick-fil-A, you know, those places you walk in, they've always got like 10 people running around working in there. And I think that culture plays a strong role. Other restaurants need to get on that bandwagon. If you look at like the California labor law that passed about six weeks oh, ago, yeah. that's yeah. going to be driving fast food minimum wages in the largest, you know, state in the country up to $23 an hour. And that is causing a lot of problems for that industry because their margins are so tight. And then you couple that with supply chain constraints. I was talking to a small, you know, sub 20 uh, chicken sandwich uh, chain, and they were talking about how they're just kind of core input costs of chicken have gone up like 60% in the last 12 to 14 months. And so when you have those two types of pressures, you have to do things around automation and culture to release yep. that pressure on your business. Yeah, we're basically in the same business. We're just tackling it from different sides because I do... Uh, we call it operations management software and our software is to try to take the guesswork out of running the restaurant and get people people accountable to doing those things that affect customer satisfaction speed of service which affects sales and profits you know and it's the same thing like if you know if if you don't have that system in place then when you have high turnover situations everything just goes gets so bad so fast because you're just it's like throwing new bodies into the breach right like just get in there and stop this from being horrible but if they don't know what to do 
because you literally don't have time to train them because literally their first day of training is four people called in sick. You're now making tacos. Look at those little cards and start throwing meat in the shells, right? Like, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it is a nutso time. But it also, and what, what I think is interesting about it as well, just this time frame is that, and I've been saying this, like when you bring in, uh, like you bring conversational AI into your restaurant, right? Which you're not going back. You know what I mean? Like you're just not going back. Oh yeah. Period. People, people readjust to a new kind of labor cost profile. Yeah, no, you're not going back. Like, and so you're not getting rid of it. And so that's a job that's going away. Right. And, and, and it's going away because technology is like, cause your conversational AI, as long as you have an internet connection, you know, and a speaker and I, you know what I mean? Like it. Agreed. Like, it's pretty simple. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it never calls in sick. It doesn't get COVID. It doesn't complain. It's just there. I heard no, no wage or gender discrimination lawsuits. Exactly. <laughs> doesn't need Cobra. Doesn't like lie to you when you got like, you know, like it's like trying to one up you and stuff. Yeah. It's just there. And that's the same thing with the flippy robot. You know, um, it's the same thing with the flippy robot. Yeah. Like nobody, you know, there's such a stigma like, oh, you work at McDonald's? Are you do the fries? Are you the fry guy at McDonald's? No, I don't. I have this, I have this, whatever. I think that robot used to cost like a hundred K and now it's down to like 10 or 20. And I don't know what the exact cost is, but like, you know, right. but that guy never causes insects. There's always, there's always going to be fries, always going to be fries. You know what I mean? And that's all it needs to do. We don't have to automate out every job in the restaurant. We just have to automate out the dumb ones, you know? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I think that there is going to be a, over time a bifurcation of the restaurant industry. And you'll see, I think, Chick-fil-A and others that will keep a very high touch experience or Shake Shack, for example. But, you know, you will be, as you already almost are, over $20 for a sandwich, a small drink and a small fry. And then I think you're going to have others that are going to really embrace automation. And it's going to be less about the service aspect. And it's going to be more about good food at a very cheap price. And yep. you can only pull that off with automation. So it'll be interesting to see over the next three to five years. But I would expect, a, you know, a few chains to either evolve or be started that are entirely based around automation from the beginning. Oh, I, I would absolutely agree. And I think like, you know, like if you look at the Taco Bell of the future, it's not like four drive through lanes underneath some for like uh, Uber Eats and then some for people. And you don't even see the person. The food's coming down on a dumb waiter and like a tube, you know, like, you know, and then you can have like one person servicing, you know, all those lanes or your AI servicing doing the order for all those lanes simultaneously. That's the other thing with the AI. You could have multi that AI could be servicing four speakers right at the same time whereas Correct. they really don't need four, four people. people to do that so yeah and, it's then, interesting. and then we get the other robotic company to run the food down to you and then the third yeah. you know viso robotics making the food it's, it's an entire assembly line like a tesla plant but for cheeseburgers yeah it is and then you have one or two people there to handle an issue, make sure the food's clean, restock the fries. That's where I think the miso model is, or the, the miso robotics model, you know, like how does it, I mean, and I'm sure you could do this, but at some point you need to have a person somewhere loading the food up in the right area so that it can get ported out there. Like you brought, I mean, the restaurant guy of the future is gonna be a guy who knows how to like hard reboot restaurant uh, robots, like, you know, like that light's blinking. Okay, unplug it, plug it back in. And then yeah. gonna where's be the cartridge to blow on? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, put it back in. And then, yeah. you know, they're just going to be running and supplying coolers, you know, and opening boxes and making it easy for the robots to do what they need to do. Or, or there'll be but a like, whole new set of hoppers and, you know, whatever, burger, a refrigerated burger sleeve that just drops burgers onto a grill. I mean, there's so many things you could do. Yeah. Well, and I think, Real quick, kind of just going off of that, too. I mean, I think that'll provide a more interesting job for that person, right? I mean, we made the joke about, you know, pulling a cord out, but maybe they're writing, you know, quick scripts to make a quick change to something, dealing with the customer experience. Like, you're a lot more active. Your brain is being used in a lot of different ways versus just repeating the same greeting over and over and yeah. over again, which really isn't a good use of human cognitive capability. No. 
and and like if you listen to the adaptation advantage or you read it whatever i mean you know what they, their their hypothesis is, is is that you know we're not going to uh, get rid of human beings in these jobs we're just going to have them augmenting their their jobs just going to change right so I mean, you'll get rid of, but you know, some of the like the, but like the laborious task things, like because robots yeah. are good at doing the same thing over and over again. Human beings are good at like assessing a situation and figuring it out, and then going, okay, yeah, this is being creative. Yeah. Like I would say, if it's a job that will eventually give somebody like carpal tunnels, like find a way to automate that. Yeah. So I got carpal tunnel coding, so I guess like you know, <laughs> <laughs> so you're like be careful with what, what you try to automate right now. <laughs> no, I don't, no, yeah, and I mean it's funny too because I also like we just added IoT to our platform and like you know IoT has not taken off in the restaurant industry like people expected it to. You know, I just got an email from like one of our like semi partner companies on that, and they're like chefs are checking the cooler temperature from their phones, and I'm like no, they're not. No one's looking at the cooler temperature. No, they never have. Like the, the best thing that IoT does is it tells you your core is completely screwed up, right? But like yeah. so IoT from a refrigeration monitoring perspective hasn't really blown up in the restaurant space because the use case is a soft ROI on it's going to save somebody 10 minutes in checking cooler temps or B, that your cooler is going to like go explode, right? And then it, there'll be no, you know, you'll lose all your food, right? Which it would be, and, that would be something. And your people. Depending yeah. on the explosion size. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just shrapnel everywhere. But like, you know, which if you're doing sushi or dry aged steaks makes a lot of sense. But for the most, like in you know, a fast food restaurant, yeah, whatever. They're a couple thousand, maybe a thousand bucks or whatever at any given time because they're volume. But like the point is like that's not. And so that never it never blew up. Right. Like you just went selling it. But now, like I look at it and I go, I think the real ROI on IOT is you are in a labor shortage and you need to make people's jobs as best you can to keep them as long as you can. Right. And so automating out stupid repetitive tasks is probably the real ROI of IOT. Right. You know what I mean? Like just why, you know, like just make their job easier. So they want to stay longer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, great, especially when you have 300% turnover per year in a lot of restaurants, you need to do everything you can to make that a good experience for people. Yeah. But you, you know, I'm gonna, and obviously, this is how this podcast goes. We haven't even started question two yet. But one last point of that is, and this is something that I remember from my youth waiting tables, right? So, like when I was doing stand up, I had a hotel restaurant degree. When I was doing stand up, I needed flexible jobs because I would go on the road. And so I would wait tables. And what I feel like the restaurant industry needs to be advertising and focusing on to attract a staff was that when you worked at a restaurant, it was your work family and you went out and got beers afterwards and you hung out and, you know, you had like this work family because you worked weird hours. And so, you know, you weren't able to hang out with your normal family, like on Friday night dinner because you were waiting tables or whatever. Right. And there was that family aspect to being a part of a restaurant crew, man. we've been grinding all day. We've been slammed all day. We had a record day. We made tips, whatever it is. Restaurants need to remember that if you want to hold people in, it can't just be this robotic businessy job. It needs you've got to build that culture at the store level, right? That this is a fun place to work and these are cool people and you all are doing cool things. You know what I mean? And and try get back to trying to focus on building that individual store level culture because that yeah. culture will keep people working there when other parts of the business really suck. When tips suck, when the business is slow, when things are hard, it's that I don't want to, it's almost like that military unit sort of camaraderie, right? So I do think the restaurants need to get back to that focus. And you see it when you see restaurants that are fully staffed and are cranking, I guarantee you it, it's because the culture in that unit is high. You know, there's a good feel there. Agree completely. Okay. Question number two. Uh, <laughs> what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Yeah, I think it kind of goes off of what we were talking about um, in terms of the IoT stuff. 
specifically in, I think there's another use case for this technology where it's not just focused on the drive-through and the end customers, but providing an AI system for the actual staff members themselves. Something that helps train people, gets them up to speed faster, answers questions. And I do think we could increase the value of a lot of that IoT stuff by plugging that in directly to the employees and giving them proactive insights and advice on how to be more efficient with their job, what they could be focusing on, any issues going on inside the restaurant. I think there's opportunities to use it for inventory management and things like that. So we're um, we're working with a pretty big chain and kind of working and refining that experience. Um, and I think that's something that you know could um, could really take off in the industry as a way to sort of help stem the high turnover rates in restaurants. Yeah. I mean, too, think about it this way too. Like if the AI could have some of the harder conversations so the GM didn't have to, you know, that would be interesting. Right. You know what I mean? Like well, hey, you're, you're, you know, you're not upset. Like if the AI through like the POS tablet or whatever could be like, Hey, you're not upselling enough. Can you, you know, with a voice, Hey, can you do yeah. me over and really push the daiquiri or whatever the heck it is? And so the GM doesn't have to because the AI is more present and, and available to do stuff like that, you know? So. Definitely. Well, and even as we're talking about it, I do, you know, now think you have to walk a very fine line because you don't want to harass people necessarily and they'll be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like it it up. Too. But, you know, if you can find ways in a, in a friendly, supportive, empathetic way to support um, the staff with what they're doing, I think that is something that could be really well received. Yeah. Like big, you don't want it to be big brother either. And, you know, we, so here's what's funny. And I wrote a blog about this because with our platform, what we do is we show you what's actually happening in your restaurant, right? Like you have these rose colored glasses about what's what you thought was happening because you had no data. Then we come in and, you know, you can actually see the human activity, what's actually getting done, what's not getting done, what's getting pencil with, whatever. And it's funny because when people come in at the beginning of our like implementation process, they, I, they go into what I call the big brother conundrum, right? Which is they want big brother because they want to know what the hell's going on because they've never had this level of visibility before. And they're just like, Oh my God, they don't even realize what's really happening, but they don't want to be perceived as being big brother. Right? So there's a fine line yeah, exactly. of how do I become big brother without becoming big brother? You know? And what I always tell right. them is focus on the data. Like, like if you say like, I'm watching to see that you do everything right then people are going to get pissed off and be like, I don't want to work here because I'm not going to do everything right. And I don't feel like getting hassled about it. But if you say, Hey, look, yep. we need more data to make better decisions so that we can just be better at our jobs. And we realized that we were guessing and we were relying on experience and our own perceptions and the data makes it so much easier. You get, you get both. You get the data, you you make the employee feel like, oh, I'm helping collect data that they're gonna use to make decisions off of. And then, but you also get all the big brother stuff because you're tracking, you know, the data is tracking what's happening. So I, you know, that's a an interesting, that's a kind of like, that's, I think you just have to re-message it, right? But they do want right. the big brother. But like you said, if it's too big brothery, like what I found is when I lock down checklists, because the people are like the people at the other end are like, they're not doing their work. Screw these guys. We got to lock everything down. People just don't even do it because it becomes too hard to do. Right. So we always try to walk a fine line with, with our work in the respect of, hey, let's just make it open, but track what everybody's doing. And then we can tell you what they're not doing. Right. But we don't have to stop them, you know, from actually trying to do their job because they didn't do one thing correctly, you know yeah yeah i agree with you completely and i think one thing that's important in this whole process too is to be inclusive of the team members and pull them into the process uh, right. hey how do we make this thing not big brother how do we support you so this feels like a indispensable tool or an extension of yourself that ultimately makes your job a little easier and more efficient and i think that yeah. if we kind of bring them into the tent you know we found with the work that we're doing already you know they've brought up a lot of stuff that we hadn't thought of you know sure. one of them 
has been they have to go and take temperatures of various food items. And then they're trying to walk around with a pen and paper, but that's creating, you know, sanitation issues and things like that of the surfaces that they're touching. So if they can use voice only, they can walk around, take the temperatures of everything, tell the AI what they are, the AI can log all of that. And then whenever they get a health inspection, they have all of that automatically in their in their logs. And they're not trying to copy stuff over from paper or whatever other tools that they were using in the past. So I think, you know, by involving them in that process, we can find a way to make their jobs easier and make it not feel too big brotherish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, number three. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Um, you know, I think I'd be lying right now if I didn't say that the market is just choppy. So November 15th of 2022, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but FTX just collapsed a few days ago. You know, anytime a $50 billion unicorn startup just straight up implodes, um, it freaks everybody out. You know, I don't think that we're going to look back on this and view it as being too dissimilar to Theranos. Um, I think the CEO of that company is in a lot of trouble. Yeah, He has a lot of issues in front of him. What well, was it just a few weeks ago? You know, Elizabeth Holmes got a 15 year uh, sentence for Theranos. So you have to be really, really careful as an investor, as a startup CEO, you got to be thoughtful about the market. And I think there's going to be a lot of ripple effects. Again, where we're at right now, Facebook laid off 11,000 people last week. Amazon is announcing uh, supposedly a 10,000 person layoff tomorrow. Twitter fired half their staff two weeks ago. Um, there is a tremendous amount of instability in the marketplace right now. And I think that we're seeing that with venture investing having gone off a cliff the last two quarters. I think a lot of people were hoping it was going to pick back up in the first quarter of next year. But with all of these kind of recent market turbulence, it could be next summer, you know, before we see meaningful venture investing pick back up again. Yeah, that's terrifying. Uh, yeah, that th- <laughs> I, I didn't know that it was I didn't pay attention. I was I was out of the country, too, last week and I wasn't really paying attention. And so that's interesting about Elizabeth Holmes. I'll have to read about that. Um, yeah, it is a weird time. And. I actually was writing a blog on this because like the thing that's really interesting, I think, especially for dining out right now is that, and I, I see this in our own family, right? We're a family of four, you know, we do okay, right? We can Fordita. And, uh, but like, I've seen us cut our dining out by just massive amounts because, because what's happened is, is the food that used to be cheap. And so you were okay if it didn't, wasn't like the best tasting food, you know, when it, when a Big Mac was, you know, six bucks for a Big Mac meal or seven bucks, yeah, it's a $7 thing. I, I, I'm, oh, the value proposition on that Big Mac meal at seven bucks was fine. But now that it's 10 or 11 bucks, and I don't know the exact price, I'm just, yeah, I'm just, you know, whatever, hyperbole or whatever. But like, when I say like 11 bucks, you go, well, I really want this to be a delicious for 11 bucks. Like in my mind, what 11 bucks is worth is different than what I'm getting for 11 bucks. You know what I mean? And uh, and so we've really like trimmed down our dining out spend to the point of like, and I, I was putting it in this blog, but I, I, I tracked our DoorDash back in March. We spent like $400 on DoorDash. And I think like it was like eight or 10, you know, meals that delivered. And then I think in August we spent a hundred, but that was two meals. And one of them was $95. It was Magianas. So like, we're just camping it back. And then there's, there's a price point where certain people just can't afford to eat out anymore. You know what I mean? 10, 12, 15 bucks for a sandwich. It just gets to be too much. You know what I mean? And, and the restaurants have made, I think needed price increases because they needed to raise their prices because I think they were being artificially low at some points. But, you know, I, I'm expecting to see cover counts start to go down because just people can't afford to have an $80 like pancake breakfast. You know what I mean? I think we're already there. Um, yeah. I mean, I can tell you from firsthand accounts, you know, we're working with a variety of different restaurant chains and we're getting a lot of inbound requests to increase upsells because they are definitely seeing the volume of customers going down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you are a good kind of litmus test for sort of customers at large. Yep. And in the past, you know, we might have averaged one to one and a half upsells per order. 
um, which is still pretty significant because um, in past years, you know, just a, a human driven approach, upsells were usually like, you know, about 20% of the time they were upselling, you know, and we upsell 100 to 150% of the time. So right. it's, you know, already five to six times more upsells than what the average employee will deliver. But now because it's software and for lack of a better term, you can kind of flip a switch on some of these things. You know, we're having restaurants come in and saying, hey, we want to average two or three or even in some cases four upsells per order. And I think that's been kind of an interesting indicator. Number one, just showing us that there is a lot of trouble with the average number of customers going down. But two, maybe a nice little additional sales point for us that says, hey, in these types of market conditions, you're going to have a really hard time trying to go to all 7,000 of your restaurants and convince every one of your order takers to upsell 15 times more than they normally do. Sure. Versus you shoot one email to your conversational AI provider, you know, and with an hour, you've quadrupled the number of upsells that you're delivering to the market. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. This is a, this is a crazy, crazy time. And it is just, I've never seen anything like it. It's just a weird time. It is a weird time. I agree. It, you know, and it's crazy to be an entrepreneur too, like we are, because you're like, man, I have put everything into this business, you know, and for like these weird market, like uh, these weird market factors that are outside of my control completely to have such an influence on what I'm trying to do right now is like, it is terrifying. Yeah. It's an interesting time in the market right now. Um. Uh, Number four, what is one thing you thought your industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Um, the company or the industry? The industry, the restaurant industry or whatever. Oh. I mean, like, because you'll be in retail and movie theaters and all that stuff too, but yeah, yeah. like your verticals that you, you perform in, like, but I guess restaurants primarily. Yeah. I mean, I think the reality is, is that AI in general is i think significantly harder than a lot of people expected oh, yeah. um you know not to get too uh soapboxy or luxury but if you go back you know modern machine learning which is what ai actually is um really only got going in like 2012 with ImageNet, where a researcher trained uh, image classifier that you know blew everything out of the water that had ever come before it and sort of set off kind of the modern thrust that now we see in conversational AI, we see in self-driving cars and things like that. You know, 2016, 2017, you know, Elon Musk was saying that, you know, we'd have self-driving cars by 2020. We not only don't have that, but we saw Argo collapse about two weeks ago. So realistically, you know, we're probably five years out from, you know, level four self-driving technology and level five self-driving technology could be a decade or more away. Um, I think in the conversational AI space, we're constantly running into all the challenges of edge cases and trying to build an AI system that is capable of carrying on human level conversations. And even with a very domain specific focus like restaurants, there's still, you know, thousands of challenges that crop up every single day trying to carry on conversations with a diverse customer base. So I think I'm surprised, you know, when I started this company in 2017, I think I would be very surprised uh, fast forwarding to hear that AI is not further along. Um, I would have expected to see a lot more robots and self-driving cars delivering food. Um, drone delivery has always seemed like a really exciting space. Um, that has still not taken off in a meaningful way. And I think the reality is, is that a lot of this technology is just exponentially harder than anyone ever assumed it would be on the surface. Um, and I think that the technology in general probably still has years and years and years of work ahead of it. And then longer term, I'm, you know, I'm a little pessimistic on the current architecture for artificial intelligence technology. It does okay with pattern matching. You know, you're trying to match a wave file to a text string, which is I want a cheeseburger, or you're trying to match a picture to a stop sign so that the car knows to stop. Um, but unsupervised learning has never taken off in a real meaningful way, in my opinion. Uh, inference, domain transfer, um, 
AI is still the dirty secret is it's still just massive amounts of human labor in the background, classifying data, jumping into calls when there's problems, taking over a car trip when there's issues. Um, and so I think we have a lot of time ahead of us and potentially a, a fundamental rewrite of architecture to get to what a lot of us might feel would be like a next generation AI system than what we're seeing today. Yeah, that's interesting. We're, we're uh, in the very beginning stages of adding um, machine learning and AI to our platform. Like we're in the analysis phase, if you will. And um, it, that's very interesting to hear that, so. Yeah, if it's um, data or it's not time relevant, you know, like if you're doing batch processing, all of that makes it easier. Sure, um, you're gonna do stuff in real time though. But when you're trying to do stuff in real time, that is super hard. Oh yeah, I, I can imagine. So when we're on the 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 first part of what you said, so um, cool. Ah, look how fast we went. So we're at number question number five. War story time. That was a great, funny, cringe-worthy war story from your past. Could be <laughs> your software goofed up. It could be I had this all totally other job in college and it was nuts. Like I just want one of those stories out there. Like, ah, I can't believe we got through it, you know? <laughs> Probably just give you a more painful learning experience one. So my first company was a custom software development company. Um, it was called Appet Ventures. In the first, you know, six years that I was running that company, we built and launched 350 custom software applications, That's predominantly horrible. native mobile apps, web applications, backend databases, administrative portals, things like that. That was a huge volume to be working on. And part of it was we were just trying to make a name for ourselves. So we were sort of taking on the lower end of the market, people that didn't have as much money as some of the, you know, higher up software development companies, customers could pay. Um, and I was about nine months into the company. I had started it with another um, business friend, associate of mine, but neither one of us were technical. And so we brought on a technical CTO who seemed like a really great guy on the, on the front side. We then hired like five or six junior engineers to work underneath of them because it was the only way we could even have a hope of trying to break even on all this development work that we were doing. And we were about, you know, seven, eight months into the company. So back in 2012. And that Christmas, um, the mayor of Denver, Mayor Hancock, came down to our office. Diane DeGette, our U.S. representative, came down to our office. Channel 7 News came down and it was this really cool kind of like feel good and entrepreneurial story. These, you know, we had just won the business plan competition at CU Denver. And then we won the business plan competition for the city of Denver. That went into getting the mayor to come down. And so it was just, just super cool sort of feel good experience. But, you know, late December, January, we were getting behind on projects, behind on projects. And it, you know, it finally all came to a head in February. And, you know, it's hard to classify our that CTO is just not being fraudulent, basically, where he was kind of promising the world, oh, we're working on stuff, we're working on stuff, and basically nothing was being worked on. So it was a huge blow up. He acted like we were the bad guys and left the company. You know, we brought in, um, you know, good qualified developers to do code audits on everything. And it was, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's trash software. And so, you know, we had to let go of all the junior engineers because we didn't have anybody to manage them. You know, my partner and I made it about another month and then he was like, hey, I'm not having fun, man. I'm not feeling good, I don't feel healthy, like I gotta go. And so he left. And so, you know, within the span of like 60 to 90 days, you know, we went from the mayor and everybody else being down at our office and all this great oh, stuff wow. to 90 days later, there was two of us left out of 10. And, you know, two thirds of our customers left. And, you know, either hadn't gotten started and so everybody was able to walk or, you know, we had to give people a bunch of money back or a couple of them, you know, who were really relying on us didn't have any other choice. And so there was nothing to do but just kind of grind through it and slowly start to, you know, rebuild that team back up. So it was a very, very painful experience. It was a good learning experience. Um, I've never started another company with a partner since then. <laughs> it's like <laughs> right or wrong. There just sometimes needs to be a dictator and you just go for it. And, you know, I think we could have averted some of those crises if my business partner and I hadn't been kind of locked in negotiations and a bit of disagreement about the different paths um, to travel down. But, you know, fast forward to, you know, right around the time that I was starting 
Valiant, um, the last project that I closed um, at my company before I ultimately ended up leaving and selling it, was that we closed the My Colorado app. And for anybody that doesn't know, Colorado was the, I, I believe, the first state in the union that had a digital driver's license mobile app. And it had to go all the way through Congress to get approved. They had to train all the police that they could use it, you know, when they were pulling people over or at bars and things like that. COVID, you know, came a few years later and they added the digital COVID, you know, identification cards to it. Um, And so it was a really, really cool uh, experience to, I think, leave on such a high note with such a big, you know, prestigious project uh, that we were able to launch with the state of Colorado and a couple of other software companies like Ping Identity here in town that handled all of the... um, you know, registered users in the state's um, identification in the app and things like that. That's amazing. We have so many uh, crisscrossing like paths, you know? So I did, we did custom software development too, my previous company in the semantic partner channel. And we did a very specific thing. We did semantic workflow and doing that level of like building a new piece of software every month for somebody or every six months getting a new client building a whole new software from scratch that is just hard it is so hard especially because it's so hard it just sucks i mean it was brutal like when we 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 launched our company inside well we launched the product that we sell today was actually a training project for one of my coders and i was like hey you got to build this thing that i built when i worked at quiznos you know, and uh, and just see it. And then it got a little traction. And then, but like, I, I worked on it on nights and weekends for like 18 months. Like I would pull all-nighters all the time, just trying to get this code written after my day job, because I just, I saw so many of our like custom software projects just ended like, Wow, you know, they never like, there were so few of them that were people were like, this is gonna be great. We got our money's worth. We can't wait to use this. That was like 5% of them. 95% of them were like, I guess we're done now, right? We don't have any more money and you're not going to work anymore. So we'll just take what you have, you know? Yeah. It was just horrible. And I honestly felt too, a big problem was lack of really good project management on both sides. Our side is telling people no. And on their side, telling people no. We just got to get these directors that wanted to be VPs or senior managers that wanted to be directors and they would throw everything in the kitchen sink in these builds. And all of a sudden they just got so convoluted. You couldn't even do them. You know, like the, the software just got whatever. Yeah. So cool, man. It was awesome having you, Rob. Um, we are definitely going to connect offline and uh, just thank you. And and I will put in the, the show notes, uh, links to your website. Do you want to leave with anything you want to say real quick? Uh, no, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure to meet you. And let's get together with the Robotics Guy and have a beer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you guys for listening to the Order Up show. I appreciate it. We have a lot of people. Uh, we're going to be starting to release episodes again. So please keep listening. And thank you so much.